Chapter Two of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. American Notes by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Two. American Politics. I have been watching machinery in repose after reading about machinery in action an excellent gentleman who bears a name honoured in the magazine writes as disraeli orated of the sublime instincts of an ancient people the certainty with which they can be trusted to manage their own affairs in their own way and the speed with which they are making for all sorts of desirable goals this he called a statement or purview of american politics i went almost directly afterwards to a saloon where gentlemen interested in ward politics nightly congregate. They were not pretty persons. Some of them were bloated, and they all swore cheerfully till the heavy gold watch-chains on their fat stomachs rose and fell again. But they talked over their liquor as men who had power and unquestioned access to places of trust and profit. The magazine writer discussed theories of government these men the practice they had been there they knew all about it they banged their fists on the table and spoke of political pulls the vending of votes and so forth theirs was not the talk of village babblers reconstructing the affairs of the nation but of strong coarse lustful men fighting for spoil and thoroughly understanding the best methods of reaching it i listened long and intently to speech i could not understand or but in spots it was the speech of business, however. I had sense enough to know that, and to do my laughing outside the door. Then I began to understand why my pleasant and well-educated hosts in San Francisco spoke with a bitter scorn of such duties of citizenship as voting, and taking an interest in the distribution of offices. Scores of men have told me, without false pride, that they would as soon concern themselves with the public affairs of the city or state as rake muck with a steam-shovel. It may be that their lofty disdain covers selfishness, but I should be very sorry habitually to meet the fat gentleman with the shiny top hats and plump cigars in whose society I have been spending the evening. Read about politics as a cultured writer of the magazine regards them, and then, not until then, pay your respects to the gentlemen who run the grim reality. I'm sick of interviewing night editors who lean their chair against the wall, and, in response to my demand for the record of a prominent citizen, answer, Well, you see, he began by keeping a saloon, etc. I prefer to believe that my informants are treating me as in the old sinful days in India I used to treat the wandering globe-trotter. They declare that they speak the truth, and the news of dog politics lately vouchsafed to me in groggeries inclines me to believe, but I won't. The people are much too nice to slang gander as recklessly as I have been doing. Besides, I am hopelessly in love with about eight American maidens, all perfectly delightful till the next one comes into the room. Otoyo was a darling, but she lacked several things, conversation for one. You cannot live on giggles. She shall remain unmarried at Nagasaki, while I roast a battered heart before the shrine of a big Kentucky blonde who had for a nurse when she was little a negro mammy 
by consequence she has welded on california beauty paris dresses eastern culture europe trips and wild western originality the queer dreamy superstitions of the quarters and the result is soul-shattering she is but one of many stars item a maiden who believes in education and possesses it with a few hundred dollars to boot and a taste for slumming item the leader of a sort of informal salon where girls congregate read papers and daringly discuss metaphysical problems and candy a slow-eyed black-browed imperious maiden she item a very small maiden absolutely without reverence who can in one swift sentence trample upon and leave gasping half a dozen young men item a millionairess burdened with her money lonely caustic with a tongue keen as a sword yearning for a sphere but chained up to the rock of her vast possessions item a typewriter maiden earning her own bread in this big city because she doesn't think a girl ought to be a burden on her parents who quotes theophile gautier and moves through the world manfully much respected for all her twenty inexperienced summers item a woman from cloudland who has no history in the past or future but is discreetly of the present and strives for the confidences of male humanity on the grounds of sympathy methinks this is not altogether a new type item a girl in a dive blessed with a greek head and eyes that seem to speak all that is best and sweetest in the world but woe is me she has no ideas in this world or the next beyond the consumption of beer a commission on each bottle and protests that she sings the songs allotted to her nightly without more than the vaguest notion of their meaning sweet and comely are the maidens of devonshire delicate and gracious seeming those who live in the pleasant places of london fascinating for all their demureness the damsels of france clinging closely to their mothers with large eyes wondering at the wicked world excellent in her own place and to those who understand her is the anglo-indian spin in her second season but the girls of america are above and beyond them all they are clever they can talk yea it is said that they think certainly they have the appearance of doing so which is delightfully deceptive they are original and regard you between the brows with unabashed eyes as a sister might look at her brother they are instructed too in the folly and vanity of the male mind for they have associated with the boys from babyhood and can discerningly minister to both vices or pleasantly snub the possessor they possess moreover a life among themselves independent of any masculine associations they have societies and clubs and unlimited tea-fights where all the guests are girls they are self-possessed without parting with any tenderness that is their sex right they understand they can take care of themselves they are superbly independent when you ask them what makes them so charming they say it is because we are better educated than your girls and and we are more sensible in regard to men we have good times all round but we aren't taught to regard every man as a possible husband nor is he expected to marry the first girl he calls on regularly yes they have good times their freedom is large and they do not abuse it they can go driving with young men and receive visits from young men to an extent that would make an english mother wink with horror neither driver nor drivee has a thought beyond the enjoyment of a good time
as certain also of their own poets have said. Man is fire and woman is tow, and the devil he comes and begins to blow. In America the tow is soaked in a solution that makes it fireproof, in absolute liberty and large knowledge. Consequently, accidents do not exceed the regular percentage arranged by the devil for each class and climate under the skies. But the freedom of the young girl has its drawbacks. She is, I said with all reluctance, irreverent. From her forty-dollar bonnet to the buckles of her eighteen-dollar shoes, she talks flippantly to her parents and men old enough to be her grandfather. She has a prescriptive right to the society of the man who arrives. The parents admit it. This is sometimes embarrassing, especially when you call on a man and his wife for the sake of information, the one being a merchant of vast knowledge, the other a woman of the world. In five minutes your host has vanished, in another five his wife has followed him, and you are left alone with a very charming maiden, doubtless, but certainly not the person you came to see. She chatters and you grin, but you leave with the very strong impression of a wasted morning. This has been my experience once or twice. I have even said as pointedly as I dared to a man, I came to see you. You better see me in my office, then. The house belongs to my womenfolk, to my daughter, that is to say. He spoke the truth. The American of wealth is owned by his family. They exploit him for bullion. The women get the halfpence. the kicks are all his own. Nothing is too good for an American's daughter, here I speak of the moneyed classes. The girls take every gift as a matter of course, and yet they develop greatly when a catastrophe arrives and the man of many millions goes up or goes down, and his daughters take to stenography or typewriting. I've heard many tales of heroism from the lips of girls who counted the principles among their friends. The crash came. Mammy or Hattie or Sadie gave up their maid, their carriages and candy, and with a number two Remington and a stout heart set about earning their daily bread. And did I drop her from my list of friends? No, sir, said a scarlet-lipped vision in white lace. That might happen to us any day. It may be this sense of possible disaster in the air that makes San Francisco society go with so captivating a rush and whirl. Recklessness is in the air. I can't explain where it comes from, but there it is. The roaring winds of the Pacific make you drunk to begin with, the aggressive luxury on all sides helps out the intoxication, and you spin for ever down the ringing grooves of change. There is no small change, by the way, west of the Rockies, as long as money lasts. They make greatly and they spend lavishly. Not only the rich, but the artisans, who pay nearly five pounds for a suit of clothes, and for other luxuries in proportion. The young men rejoice in the days of their youth. They gamble, yacht, race, enjoy prize-fights and cock-fights, the one openly, the other in secret, they establish luxurious clubs, they break themselves over horse-flesh and other things, and they are instant in a quarrel. At twenty they are experienced in business, embark in vast enterprises, take partners as experienced as themselves, and go to pieces with as much splendor as their neighbors. Remember that the men who stocked California in the fifties were physically, and as far as regards certain tough virtues, the pick of the earth. The inept and the weakly died our route, or went under in the days of construction. To this were added all the races of the continent, French, Italian, German, and, of course, the Jew. The result 
you can see in the large-boned, deep-chested, delicate-handed women, and long, elastic, well-built boys. It needs no little golden badge swinging from the watch-chain to mark the native son of the Golden West, the country-bred of California. Him I love, because he is devoid of fear, carries himself like a man, and has a heart as big as his books. I fancy, too, he knows how to enjoy the blessings of life, that his province so abundantly bestows upon him. At least, I heard a little rat of a creature with hock-bottle shoulders explaining that a man from Chicago could pull the eye-teeth of a Californian in business. Well, if I lived in fairyland, where cherries were as big as plums, plums as big as apples, and strawberries of no account, where the procession of the fruits of the seasons was like a pageant in a Drury Lane pantomime, and the dry air was wine, I should let business slide once in a way, and kick up my heels with my fellows. The tale of the resources of California, vegetable and mineral, is a fairy tale. You can read it in books. You'd never believe me. All manner of nourishing food, from sea-fish to beef, may be bought at the lowest prices, and the people are consequently well-developed and of a high stomach. They demand ten shillings for tinkering a jammed lock of a trunk. They receive sixteen shillings a day for working as carpenters. They spend many sixpences on very bad cigars, which the poorest of them smoke, and they go mad over a prize-fight. When they disagree, they do so fatally with firearms in their hands and on the public streets. I was just clear of Mission Street when the trouble began between two gentlemen, one of whom perforated the other. When a policeman, whose name I do not recollect, fatally shot Ed Heaney for attempting to escape arrest, I was in the next street. For these things I am thankful. It is enough to travel with a policeman in a tramcar, and while he arranges his coat-tails as he sits down, to catch sight of a loaded revolver. It is enough to know that fifty percent of the men in the public saloons carry pistols about them. The Chinaman waylays his adversary, and methodically chops him to pieces with his hatchet. Then the press roars about the brutal ferocity of the pagan. The Italian reconstructs his friend with a long knife. The press complains of the waywardness of the alien. The Irishman and the native Californian, in their hours of discontent, use the revolver not once but six times. The press records the fact, and asks in the next column whether the world can parallel the progress of San Francisco. The American who loves his country will tell you that this sort of thing is confined to the lower classes. Just at present, an ex-judge who was sent to jail by another judge, upon my word I cannot tell whether these titles mean anything, is breathing red-hot vengeance against his enemy. The papers have interviewed both parties, and confidently expect a fatal issue. Now, let me draw breath and curse the negro waiter, and through him the negro in service generally. He has been made a citizen with a vote. Consequently, both political parties play with him. But that is neither here nor there. He will commit in one meal every bêtise that a seignion fresh from the plough-tail is capable of and he will continue to repeat those faults. He is as complete a heavy-footed, uncomprehending, bungle-fisted fool as any Memsaib in the East ever took into her establishment. But he is, according to law, a free and independent citizen, consequently above reproof or criticism. He and he alone in this insane city will wait at table. 
the, the Chinaman doesn't count. He is untrained, inept, but he will fill the place and draw the pay. Now, God and his father's fate made him intellectually inferior to the Oriental. He insists on pretending that he serves tables by accident, as a sort of amusement. He wishes you to understand this little fact. You wish to eat your meals, and if possible to have them properly served. He is a big black vein baby, and a man rolled into one. A coloured gentleman, who insisted on getting me pie when I wanted something else, demanded information about India. I gave him some facts about wages. Oh, hell! said he cheerfully. That wouldn't keep me in cigars for a month. Then he fawned on me for a ten-cent piece. Later he took it upon himself to pity the natives of India. Heathens, he called them, this woolly one, whose race has been the butt of every comedy on the native stage since the beginning. And I turned, and saw by the head on his shoulders that he was a Yoruba man. If there be any truth in ethnological castes, he did his thinking in English. But he was a Yoruba negro, and the race type had remained the same throughout his generations. And the room was full of other races, some that looked exactly like galas. But the trade was never recruited from that side of Africa. Some duplicates of Cameroon heads, some crewmen, if ever crewmen wore evening dress. The American does not consider little matters of descent, though by this time he ought to know all about damnable heredity. As a general rule, he keeps himself very far from the negro, and says things about him that are not pretty. There are six million negroes, more or less, in the States, and they are increasing. The American, once having made them citizens, cannot unmake them. He says in his newspapers they ought to be elevated by education. He's trying this, but it's likely to be a long job, because black blood is much more adhesive than white. Throws back with annoying persistence. When the negro gets religion, he returns directly as a hiving bee to the first instincts of his people. Just now a wave of religion is sweeping over some of the southern states. Up to the present two messiahs and a Daniel have appeared, and several human sacrifices have been offered up to these incarnations. The Daniel managed to get three young men, whom he insisted were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to walk into a blast furnace, guaranteeing non-combustion. They did not return. I have seen nothing of this kind, but I have attended a negro church. They pray, or are caused to pray, by themselves in this country. The congregation were moved by the spirit to groans and tears, and one of them danced up the aisle to the mourner's bench. The motive may have been genuine. The movements of the shaken body were those of a Zanzibar stick-dance, such as you can see at Aden on the coal-boats. And, even as I watched the people, the links that bound them to the white man snapped one by one, and I saw before me the hubshi, woolly hair, praying to a god he did not understand. Those neatly dressed folk on the benches, and the grey-haired elder by the window, were savages, neither more nor less. What will America do with the negro? The South will not consort with him. In some states miscegenation is a penal offence. The North is every year less and less in need of his services, and he will not disappear. He will continue as a problem. His friends will urge that he is as good as the white man. His enemies—well, you can guess what his enemies will do—from a little incident that followed on a recent appointment by the President. He made a negro an assistant in the post office, where—think of it!—he had to work at the next desk to a white girl, the daughter of a colonel, 
one of the first families of Georgia's modern chivalry, and all the weary, weary rest of it. The southern chivalry howled, and hanged or burned someone in effigy. Perhaps it was the President, perhaps it was the Negro, but the principle remains the same. They said it was an insult. It's not good to be a Negro in the land of the free and the home of the brave. But this is nothing to do with San Francisco and her merry maidens, her strong swaggering men and her wealth of gold and pride. They bore me to a banquet in honour of a brave lieutenant, Carlin of the Vandalia, who struck his ship in the great cyclone at Appia, and comported himself as an officer should. On that occasion, twas at the Bohemian Club, I heard oratory with the roundest of o's, and devoured a dinner the memory of which will descend with me into the hungry grave. There were about forty speeches delivered, and not one of them was average or ordinary. It was my first introduction to the American Eagle screaming for all its worth. The lieutenant's heroism served as a peg from which the silver-tongued ones turned themselves loose and kicked. They ransacked the clouds of sunset, the thunderbolts of heaven, the deeps of hell, and the splendour of the resurrection for tropes and metaphors, and hurled the result at the head of the guest of the evening. Never, since the morning stars sung together for joy, I learned, had an amazed creation witnessed such superhuman bravery as that displayed by the American Navy in the Samoan cyclone. Till earth rotted in the phosphorescent star and stripe of slime of a decayed universe, that godlike gallantry would not be forgotten. I grieve that I cannot give the exact words. My attempt at reproducing their spirit is pale and inadequate. I sat bewildered on a coruscating Niagara of blatherum skite. It was magnificent, it was stupendous, and I was conscious of a wicked desire to hide my face in a napkin and grin. Then, according to rule, they produced their dead, and across the snowy tablecloths dragged the corpse of every man slain in the Civil War, and hurled defiance at our natural enemy, England so please you, with her chain of fortresses across the world. Thereafter they glorified their nation afresh from the beginning, in case any detail should have been overlooked, and that made me uncomfortable for their sakes. How in the world can a white man, a sahib of our blood, stand up and plaster praise on his own country? He can think as highly as he likes but this open-mouthed vehemence of adoration struck me almost as indelicate. My hosts talked for rather more than three hours, and at the end seemed ready for three hours more. But when the lieutenant, such a big, brave, gentle giant, rose to his feet, he delivered what seemed to me as the speech of the evening. I remember nearly the whole of it, and it ran something this way. Gentlemen, it's very good of you to give me this dinner and to tell me all these pretty things. But what I want you to understand, the fact is, what we want and what we ought to get at once is a navy. More ships, lots of them. Then we howled the top of the roof off. I, for one, fell in love with Carlin on the spot. Walla! He is a man! The prince among merchants bid me take no heed to the warlike sentiments of some of the old generals. The skyrockets are thrown in for effect, quoth he and whenever we get on our hind legs we always express a desire to chore up England. It's a sort of family affair. 
and indeed when you come to think of it there is no other country for the american public speaker to trample upon france has germany we have russia for italy austria is provided and the humblest patan possesses an ancestral enemy only america stands out of the racket and therefore to be in the fashion makes a sandbag of the mother country and hangs her when the occasion requires the chain of fortresses man a fascinating talker explained to me after the affair that he was compelled to blow off steam everybody expected it and when we had chanted the star-spangled banner not more than eight times we adjourned america is a very great country but it is not yet heaven with electric lights and plush fittings as the speakers professed to believe my listening mind went back to the politicians in the saloon who wasted no time in talking about freedom but quietly made arrangements to impose their will on the citizens the judge is a great man but give thy presence to the clerk as the proverb saith and what more remains to tell i cannot write connectedly because i'm in love with all those girls aforesaid and some others who do not appear in the invoice the typewriter is an institution of which the comic papers make much capital but she is vastly convenient she and a companion rent a room in a business quarter and aided by a typewriting machine copy manuscripts at the rate of six annas a page only a woman can operate a typewriting machine because she has served apprenticeship to the sewing machine she can earn as much as one hundred dollars a month and profess to regard this form of breadwinning as her natural destiny but oh how she hates it in her heart of hearts when i got over the surprise of doing business with and trying to give orders to a young woman of coldly clerkly aspect entrenched behind gold-rimmed spectacles i made inquiries concerning the pleasures of this independence they liked it indeed they did twas the natural fate of almost all girls and recognized custom in america and i was a barbarian not to see it in that light well and after said i what happens we work for our bread and then what do you expect then we shall work for our bread till you die yes unless unless what this is your business you know a man works until he dies so shall we this without enthusiasm i suppose said the partner in the firm audaciously sometimes we marry our employees at least that's what the newspapers say the hand banged on half a dozen of the keys of the machine at once yes i don't care i hate it i hate it i hate it and you needn't look so the senior partner was regarding the rebel with grave-eyed reproach i thought you did said i i don't suppose american girls are much different from english ones in instinct isn't it theophile gautier who says that the only difference between country and country lie in the slang and the uniform of the police now in the name of all the gods at once what is one to say to a young lady who in england would be a person who earns her own bread and very naturally hates the employ and slings out of the way quotations at your head that one falls in love with her goes without saying but that is not enough a mission should be established end of chapter two american politics recording by tim bulkley of big bible dot org